I'm Hemant Mehta. And I'm Jessica Blumke. And you're listening to the podcast for FriendlyAtheist.com. You can now listen to all of our episodes and see show notes at FriendlyAtheistPodcast.com. Shulam Dean is a former Hasidic Jew. Since leaving that world, he's founded the website Unpious.com, which is a voice for other ultra-Orthodox Jews who may be rethinking their faith. And his new book is called All Who Go Do Not Return. Shulam, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you for having me. So let's start by talking about kind of what it means to be a Hasidic Jew for those of us who don't have a lot of experience with that world. Well, um, the world of Hasidic Jews is essentially, uh, it is a stream within ultra-Orthodoxy, which is a stream within Orthodoxy, Jewish Orthodoxy, uh, and that is uh, complying with a very defined set of dogmas and a very strict set of rules that apply to day-to-day life. Uh, that is first and foremost what it means. In addition, uh, Hasidic Jews uh, go sort of beyond what regular orthodoxy is, and they espouse a, a philosophy of rejectionism and separatism, uh, remaining apart from the outside world. Uh, they do that by distinguishing themselves in the way that they dress, uh, in the language that they speak, uh, Hasidim who live here in the United States uh, do not speak English day to day. They speak Yiddish. Uh, they wear, I, I don't know where you guys are based, but uh, in New York City you can see Hasidim and uh, they wear very uh, these very distinctive outfits, long black coats and black fur hats. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've got these little side uh, curl things from their, you know, with the hair. Um, and, and this is one way that they separate themselves from the rest of society. Much more importantly is they avoid uh, whatever kind of influence could seep in from the surrounding culture. So Hasidim emphasize uh, not going to college, not reading secular material, not watching TV or uh, movies, not reading secular newspapers, things like that. Um, And so essentially, Hasidim are mostly, especially in the United States, they're mostly centered in and around New York. Mm -hmm. Uh, But despite living within such a cosmopolitan world, within such a, uh, geographically, such a cosmopolitan area, uh, Hasidim are pretty much sort of, uh, they've, uh, they've created these enclaves in which they could live on their own without mingling with the surrounding culture, but also, it has to be said, they take full advantage of what the surrounding culture has to give them in terms of advanced, uh, say, medical care and, and being able to use whatever technology the world has available for them. Uh, so they, it's not like they're not like the Amish where they don't use technology. Uh, they do use technology and they do make use of the world and they make a lot of use of the political system uh, in very distinct ways that are designed to benefit the community. So, um, so that's, that's the basic, that's what Hasidic Jews, especially in the United States, uh, that's sort of how I would describe it. So when you talk about it, you kind of, it almost sounds like you think it's a little hypocritical of them to take advantage of what's around them while still withdrawing from it. Is that is that a fair read on what you said, or is that jumping too far? Yes, well, I mean, you know, I usually don't jump right into criticism about them um, because I, 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 you know, I try to maintain a little bit of neutrality, at least at the outset. But yes, I do have, I think that's a, that, that's, 
philosophically problematic to, to be part of a world that you benefit from and, and you, you acknowledge its value, you acknowledge the value of science because you use it. A Hasidic Jew when, uh, has to go from New York to London or to Jerusalem or to wherever, he'll get on a plane. Uh, Hasidim are not themselves producing uh, aerodynamics engineers. They're not mm-hmm. themselves producing physicists. They're not themselves producing doctors and scientists, uh, which means they say, you know, we will ben- we will take advantage of all the advances and and the progress that humanity has made, but we will not engage in that process. And I think that's philosophically problematic, mm-hmm. I, and and somewhat morally problematic, I think. But that you know that that might be a, a somewhat more a, a somewhat more involved and mm-hmm. nuanced critique of of that culture. Sure. Um, I think there are there are bigger problems and, and more immediate problems with that community, and that is they have uh, an unsustainable economic system where people are expected to uh, very much expected to rely on both communal and government benefits as a matter of course mm-hmm. uh, in, in order to be able to create large families. Uh, I, I, it's what I call the Hasidic community relies on what I call the unholy trifecta of uh, um, very meager secular education, uh, early marriage, and the pressure to breed early and often. Mm-hmm. And so that creates structures of dependency that that make it really, really difficult for someone later on to decide, oh, I don't really want to be a Hasidic Jew, because by then you already have five kids, mm-hmm. and you have a job within the community, and there's nothing really you can do um, you just can't give that up. And so that's, that's pretty much, I mean, it may or may not be entirely by design, but to some degree it is. And that cre- that sort of creates an environment where people have to stay within and keeps them trapped, and that, I think, is, is a very serious problem. Sure. Well, let's talk a little bit more then about kind of your own uh, journey out of that community. Where did that, st- did you have a crisis of faith, or what happened? I had a major crisis of faith. Um I mean, it started with little glimpses that I got of the outside world. I was living in a very particular uh, community that is probably the most insular Hasidic community in the United States. Uh, the community is known as the Skverers, the Skver Hasidim. Uh, the, the Hasidic world is subdivided into sects. There are the Sathmers and the Dijnitzers and the Belzers. And so the Skverers are, are another sect. And usually these sects are... They're just based on the town of origin, where they're from in Eastern Europe. Uh, but this particular sect is a very insular sect based in a small village in Lapland County, in uh, uh, of 30 minutes north of New York City. Uh, it is it is a, a an all Hasidic village, one way in, one way out, about 12, 13, maybe 15,000 inhabitants. Uh, the sidewalks have signs saying men's side, women's side. Uh, the sexes are completely segregated. There are no mixed events ever, except for intimate family events, but otherwise uh, completely separate. Men are boys um, receive almost no secular education whatsoever. I have two boys, age 13 and 15, who cannot speak, read, or write English. Uh, the girls get a, a, a somewhat better secular education for for. For reasons, you know, I can go into that later, but 
boys are expected to study uh, Jewish law and the Talmud from early morning until late at night. Uh, and men, young men, are, are expected to do that too, to devote their life to study uh, as much as they can. And um, that's the community that I came from. And at some point in my 20s, I started to gain access to the outside world. I uh, One night I turned on the radio, and uh, it, it was the middle of the night, and my wife was asleep. And I found a pair of headphones, and I realized that uh, we had a working radio in our apartment because uh, we had a cassette player, and I was supposed to disable the radio, but I never got around to it. So I uh, I was just really curious about what the outside world has to say. And so I plugged in the set of earphones and started listening, and I was just absolutely mesmerized uh, just by the most mundane aspects of the outside world, you know, traffic reports and weather reports. It was it was just uh, it was just amazing to me, uh, you know, a, a huge mattress sale in Paramus, New Jersey. That was that was incredible, and you know, traffic backed up on the Brooklyn Bridge all the way to uh, you know the BQE. So, I've never heard you know, anybody that, say their uh, introduction to the world of like technology <laughs> was through a cassette player slash radio. Like, wait till you hear yeah. about MP3s and torrents and everything. <laughs> right. Right. Well, and then came, you know, I, I was, I started at some point, I realized I needed a job because I had three kids and I needed to find a way to support them. And I had not been, you know, I, I'd been taught, uh, I'd been taught how to, uh, uh, how to conduct commerce in first century Palestine <laughs> or in fifth century Babylonia, you know. And you couldn't um, find work But I had no that? idea what a, I had no idea what a resume was. Uh, you know, I, I was taught how to how to slaughter an ox in Jerusalem's ancient temple. I could even, you know, skin it and separate the priestly portions. Uh, but I, had, I was taught not a thing about about the economic realities of living in the modern world now. And so I had two or three kids, and I, I realized I had to find some way to support them. And so I left my studies and tried to get a job as a teacher. And I was working with young kids who were having... Uh, some of them had special needs. They were, they were, you know, bright kids, but they needed a little help in their Talmud study. And I thought I would get a computer because a computer would let me uh, make worksheets for them that would help them in their studies. And so I got this computer, and with the computer was a three-and-a-half-inch floppy disk that said, America Online, oh, free boy. trial. <laughs> and I popped that into the into the slot, and it said type A colon backslash install, which I did, and, and told and told my wife that I don't know what this is, but apparently you're not going to be able to use the phone for the next thirty minutes. Um, and I, you know, listened to the wheezy, windy tones of connecting to AOL, and then welcome, you've got mail. I don't know if you guys were. Uh, uh, were big AOL users oh, yeah. back in 1996. When, when, I became an, when I became an atheist, AOL was also my gateway to finding out about atheism oh, without really? anybody knowing about it. Yeah. Oh. There you go. Well, you were way ahead of me. Uh, because <laughs> Well, I'd listened to the radio point. for a while. So. <laughs> right. So, you, yeah, you had, you had a real head start there. But I, I listened to, uh, so I got onto AOL and suddenly there's a world of like news and shopping and chat rooms. It was amazing. I was in a chat room. I was living in this tiny little, really insular village, and here I could speak to outsiders, and I start typing, and they're typing back, and it was just incredible. I, I called my wife. I said, look at this. This is 
this is amazing. And she said, you know, like, so what? It's, you know, like, it's like a phone, just you have to type. Said, <laughs> was no, she, was she impressed by it, or was she like, this is a bad idea, get the heck off of the, the well, AOL? Well, she, she, she didn't understand it. Um, she was, she was just, she was, she had a completely different kind of personality. Sure. Uh, she was just different. She didn't have, I had, I was always very curious. Um, and I was, I was always sort of looking and sort of trying to catch glimpses of the outside world and things like that. And I, I was a very good, devout Hussed, um, doing everything I needed to do, but I also had this kind of insatiable curiosity. And so something like the internet was, you know, it opened up a world to me. Um, and in chat rooms, I met people that I would never have met in real life and had certain conversations with them. They weren't necessarily uh, earth-shattering conversations, but they were conversations that gave me a glimpse into the way people outside of our community thought. And so that was really important in, in sort of in realizing not necessarily that my worldview was wrong, but realizing that there are people who seem to be reasonably sane uh, who have different worldviews. And so, and so that was an important step. And another important step was eventually I had to get a car and one day drove over to the public library, which was not something I was supposed to do, but I, uh, I was kind of curious to see what the library had to offer. I had never been in a public library before. This was, so I was around 24, 25, uh, and I get into the public library and I, I get into the children's section and in the children's section right there is a set of, uh, you know, world book encyclopedias. And so I took out one volume, started reading it, and it was fascinating. It was, you know, I mean, for the first time in my life, I started reading about Beatles and Elvis and Bruce Springsteen and, you know, and art and literature and uh, philosophy and psychology and computers. These things were, it was suddenly like I had the whole world in front of me. And I, I just, I remember sitting down at one of the kids' tables in the children's section. Like on one side of me was a, Little kid was a little boy reading the Bernstein Bears, and then on, you know, on the other side was a was a girl reading Amelia Bedelia or whatever it was, and and I was there with my pile of encyclopedias, just like piling up. And these are these are you know children's encyclopedias technically, um, but they're they're very good. The World Book Encyclopedia is not. Yeah. Um, you know, it's made for sort of teenagers and things like that. And just you know, wait till I like, tell you about Encarta. You are gonna love right. it. Well, I had the World Book I mean, Encyclopedia you know, growing up. At some point, up. I thought I shouldn't be in the children's section, and I went up <laughs> to look for the adult encyclopedia. But Encyclopedia Britannica really did not have the same appeal yeah. as you know the World Book. And I needed some pictures, you know, and the World Book had some pictures. So I, let me I, let me jump know, forward thought, a little bit. At some point, you're getting sure. all this outside knowledge. When does it become a conflict with your wife, with your parents, with your community? Well, eventually, I, you know, from the children's section, I made myself my way to the adult section, and and I found myself in the religion aisle. And the religion aisle, as you might expect, and then I found myself in the religion aisle because I was now aware that such a thing as science existed, and I knew that there were modern academics who must have studied some of these things. And, and I ended up in the religion section because I was really curious to see whether there are any studies that confirm 
things like the Israelites uh, crossing the Red Sea uh, and the you know Israelite migration from Egypt to Canaan, and whether the patriarchs Abram, Isaac, and Jacob from the Hebrew Bible, whether they were real people. I was sure that they were. Uh, but I wanted to see the evidence for it, and I was certain that there must be scholars somewhere who found some evidence for it. And lo and behold, uh, the biblical, biblical archaeology studies that I came across were giving me just the opposite of that. And that was pretty disturbing to me. And then I, I, I started reading about comparative religions and started realizing that, you know, how similar all religions are and how... Uh, it's pretty obvious that religion comes to respond to a very basic human need, um, and it, it makes a lot more sense to realize, uh, to, to see it in that in that way. And, but this didn't happen. This didn't happen overnight. This was a very very long process. Um, but but over time, I, I came to really just see religion in a completely different way. And so, yes, for me, there were, it, was, it was one long process of discovering the outside world and then realizing that the outside world has so much to say on the things that I believed in and had so much to say that contradicted the things that I believed in. And suddenly I found myself in a, in a major crisis, realizing that modern modern scholarship really completely, completely uh, tore apart every, everything that I believed. I mean, I, not everything is disproven. You know, nobody, there, there may not be evidence that completely disproves the biblical narrative 100%, but the evidence is pretty compelling, uh, you know, that, that uh, say, the Bible was, was authored by man rather than by God. Um, Shulam, and, let know, me the, let me ask you: Do you think sure. the leaders of your Hasidic community are they aware of all this and trying to keep everyone else from accessing that information, or do you think they lived in the same sort of bubble that you grew up in, where all of this was unfamiliar? Right. Well, I, I, I think yes and no. I think the answer, the number one answer, I think is is really yes. Um, the, the leaders within that community really don't know much about the outside world beyond what is practical for leading their community. In other words, you know, they know a lot about the political system. They know a lot about, uh, you know, health care issues. They know a lot about uh, things like that. They do not know about modern scholarship. To say, you know, the leader of the Sefer Hasidim, who is the Rebbe, uh, he's sort of like the supreme leader, and that village is in some ways it's kind of a quasi-theocracy, and he's at the top. He's an extremely sheltered person. Um, in other words, you know, if you're just a regular Hasid, you could get into your car, and despite all admonitions against it, you can turn on the radio if you want. Uh, the top-tier leaders can't do that. There's no way. And so they have no access to information. So they really have an extremely limited grasp of the outside world, and they have a really limited grasp of modern science and modern scholarship and things like that. But some of this is very intentional, and the ideology that was set up to separate uh, Hasidim from the rest of the world was put in place. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's, it's an ideology that's about 150 years old, 
Um, and it was said it was put in place in response to uh, the age of the Enlightenment, especially as it affected the Jewish community in Eastern Europe and parts of Western Europe, uh, specifically in Germany, Austria, uh, and that's where it started. And then, and then it spread to the Orthodox Jews who lived in Poland and Russia, who were being threatened by Enlightenment forces. Uh, it, it approximately in the mid mid 19th century, late 18th century, early 19th century, was when Jewish studies became an academic field. Uh, and so that had uh, traditional leaders very concerned, and so they created this philosophy of any religious innovation and any kind of outside influences for people. Yeah. Um, and that sort of carried over, and that's still what the, the Hasidim still stick to today. So it was conscious, it was a very conscious and deliberate uh, closing out of the outside world back then. Uh, and now, to some degree, it's still conscious. Uh, they're really, really afraid of the outside world. And I think that they sense, they know, um, as many fundamentalists with any sense know, that the outside world contains a lot of dangers to their worldview. Um, I actually firmly believe that. I think that the more intelligent uh, religious fundamentalists are... Uh, are fundamentalists sometimes precisely because they have the instinct um, that the outside world really is a threat. Mm -hmm. And so that, in response to that, they become even more, uh, even more fierce in their opposition to the outside world. But that certainly is the case within the Hasidic community. I don't know if this is an offensive analogy. I don't mean it to be, but it almost sounds like North Korea in a certain way where everyone is so sheltered and there's this debate about whether we should, like, free them, but they don't necessarily know any better. They don't know what's outside. Right. They think everything's great. Yeah. Right, right. I think I think that analogy um, is not imperfect. It's not perfect, but it's not imperfect. I think there are there's certainly elements of brainwashing that are very similar. Um, but, but I would make the case that within this community that there you know, I mean, there's a big debate between my friends and myself, others who've left, and myself about uh, whether we have an obligation to advocate uh, for those who are who are still within to to be activists for this cause of changing their society. And you know, in general, uh, my my feeling is that maybe maybe it is not completely. Uh, the right thing to do um, to try to change a community that 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 is trying to maintain its values and its worldview, um, and if it's a community that I've left and have and no longer have that kind of personal stake in it, uh, maybe maybe I you know it, it isn't really my place to to advocate for reform. On the other hand, there are young people being being sort of pressured into marriages and to have children right away with no knowledge of birth control uh, and no no understanding of their options, no knowledge that they can go to college and they can become educated and they can learn about the world uh, and they can they can uh, 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 find economic opportunities beyond what the community will offer them and maybe the outside world has an obligation to go in and at least to some extent make sure that it, that people are aware of their options. 
Um, right now, it, there's a huge problem, and, and Hasidic communities, especially in New York, they provide very, very meager secular education, as I said before, especially to boys. And this is clearly against the law. Um, but New York City and state officials are simply not enforcing the state-mandated educational curricula for private schools. And they, the, reason they, the reason they give is that they, it is not their place to launch an investigation. Um, and so, so they don't get involved in the actions of Hasidic private schools. And so even though private schools have to provide a certain set of, of subjects that they teach and have to provide the equivalent of what public schools provide, they simply don't, and nobody cares. So they're not and taking action life, on it, and it's because it's a religious community? They don't want to get involved and, like, stir up some religious right. conflict? And it's because it's a religious community, and more importantly... Uh, let's acknowledge it's a it's a very politically powerful community. So let's talk um, about that. I, I want to ask you about a few things that I've heard about the Orthodox uh, Jewish community, ultra-Orthodox community. Um, tell me if this is accurate, first of all, and then I'd love to hear your take on it. We'll do a few of these. So first about political uh, issues. Uh, I believe I heard a story that in New York, at least in one part of it, in a public school district, the ultra-Orthodox Jews made it so that they ran for the school board, won a majority of the seats, and then could dictate certain curriculum decisions, uh, price, like how much money taxpayers were giving to the district, um, or lack thereof, and that totally messed with the public school system. Is that accurate, first of all, and is that something that goes on in that world? Yeah, it's it's an episode of um, This This American American Life. Life did an episode on it. So that's that. You're talking about the East Ramapo School District, yeah. which has been um, over the past decade has been has been taken over by by not by Orthodox Jews, not only Hasidim, some non-Hasidim, but but mostly Hasidic Jews. Um, and this is, you know, the reason the reason they did it was because they were paying really really high property taxes for a school system that they did not use. That's, that's originally how all this started, because uh, uh, the, the East Roundhouse School District, which is a district in Rockland County, uh, which is New Square, which is a place that I, that I was from, is also part of it. It's on the periphery of it, but it's part of it. So they were paying um, taxes were, for a school that they, their kids didn't attend, and they were mad about it. So it, right, and the, the school taxes kept going up, and the property taxes, basically, their 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 property taxes uh, kept going up, and and a huge portion of property taxes go for schools, and so the Orthodox community decided that, you know, there is a school board that is made up entirely of people who were who had the interests of public school students in mind, but did not have the interests of of the taxpayers in mind. And so the Orthodox community made this kind of uh, sort of made this argument that if they're the ones paying for it, they should be able to have some control. And they put forward their candidates, and and they were elected. And so they were able to take over. And now, what happens when you put in candidates who are only interested in reducing property taxes, but have none of their own kids in the public schools? Then they're just going to start. You know, they they. They have no interest in, or they have a lot less interest in keeping the educational curricula as robust mm-hmm. as if they had a personal stake in it. I mean, that's that's a, that's a 
it's a fairly simple assumption that that you can make. I mean, you know, even without completely painting them as villains, uh, it's it's a pretty natural, it's pretty natural human response that if if your interest is in your taxes, then then that's the thing you're going to pay attention to. And so they've taken over, and unfortunately, what it affects most the the student body that is most affected by by it is is a black and hispanic community which is the other the neighbor which is the other part of the east Ramapo community and so and so the the children have simply had their their uh their their classes and their programs completely cut in in many cases and um some of it's just absolutely awful and the spring valley uh, public schools in the Spring Valley High School were known for many years for many of their programs. They had a great marching band, and they had great other, you know, they they won awards, and and all of these programs were completely slashed, um, and it was slashed by the school board. Now the school board argues that it's not really their fault. The school board says that it has to deal with the formula, but the state formula that provides funding to uh, to public schools to, to school districts. Um, does not work well in this case because the tax. It has, I'm not. I'm not an expert on this, and I don't. I, I, I'm not exactly clear on how this works. But there, apparently, there is some something in the formula that affects this district uniquely because the 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 public school students are generally low from low income families. Or, or something like I, I, I shouldn't. I'm no, not, that's I'm okay. Sure. That that explains like kind of their involvement in it. Right. So it gets it gets it gets really complicated. And so the This American Life story uh, was was a very sort of um, sort of very very much skewed uh, sort of against the Hasidic community. And I was, you know, I, I I get upset about the things that the Hasidic community does, and so I was kind of in favor of. The, you know, this American life taking them to task. But there were some others who argued that there were some really solid arguments on the other side and they weren't, and that they weren't given, you know, they weren't really addressed. But I think it's a very complex issue. Sure. And then I think the, I think the root of the problem is that because Hasidim maintains such, such separate communities, mm-hmm. um, and so, their interests are so different from their from their neighbors and the surrounding communities, and so when the two come together, they just you know clashes are inevitable. Sure, and also there's an argument to be made that even if your kids don't go to public schools, having strong after school programs are great for the community because it keeps kids out of trouble, helps them academically, so on and so forth. Um, Absolutely, I mean, I, I mean, you know. That's essentially the argument why everyone should support public schools. Yeah. I mean, we have old people or young people or people who have no kids in school. We have them paying school taxes because we need we need young kids. To, we need kids to get an education, right? Right. Uh, whether they're our kids or somebody else's kids, right? So absolutely. So we have actually one more thing I really wanted to discuss with you. Uh, recently in the news, there were some issues with I believe it was Hasidic Jews, but I'm not sure on airplanes saying that they couldn't yeah. or wouldn't sit near women and, and asked that the flight seating was kind of rearranged for their needs. Yeah, they wanted the women to get up off of their seats and go somewhere else so right. that they didn't, so have, they didn't to have to sit, sit next, next to them. them. Um, can what you... up with that? Right. <laughs> that sounds fun. 
so yeah, I mean, you know, this is another one of these another one of these issues that comes up and you know, frankly, I, I think that the people who do this are, are crazy religious nuts. Um, I would say that it's probably not the majority of Hasidic Jews who, who behave this way, but it does come up, and, you know, that's that's what makes the news, and it is pretty infuriating. It's infuriating when I read about it, um, but it is not it is not absolute law that a, a Hasidic person may not, you know, if, if he's a man, if he's a man, he may not sit next to a woman. Mm-hmm. But there are some who, you know, they're so sheltered and they're taught that they cannot sit next to women. And then they come onto a plane and they're suddenly surrounded by people from an entirely different culture. And so they they sort of lack the the finesse for lack of a better word, for how to go about this. And and so they'll just, you know, you'll have some man who, who all day long, he, he sits in the in the synagogue or in the yeshiva and, and he studies the Talmud, and now he's on an airplane to, to Tel Aviv, and his seat is, he's assigned a seat next to a woman, and he'll just stand there and say, no, I can't sit here. Um, that and leads so, to all you know, sorts whole, of chaos. Yeah, yeah. Oh. And, and, and now if it's... It, Think about if it's, you know, right before the holidays and, and it's a whole group of dozens of religious men going to Jerusalem or something, and suddenly you have a, sort of a mass problem and a big situation and a, an 11-hour delay or something like that. And so and so these things do happen. I don't think it's the majority of Hasidim who do these things, but they do happen, and, and then it's pretty infuriating. I have one last question for you. Sorry, we lied. Uh, one last <laughs> question. What Ever since you started talking about this stuff publicly, ever since your book came out, what response have you heard from within the community? Are there other ex-Hasidim who have contacted you? Have you heard from people who are still within that community who are pissed off at you? What's the deal? Oh, I get I get lots of messages all the time. Um, I would basically divide them into, into two categories. One is uh, people who write me, or especially from the Hasidic community, from the Orthodox community, people who write me saying, you know, I am in your exact place where you were 10 years ago. I, I really dislike it here. Help me. How do I get out? Um, and the other part is people who write me saying that, uh, you know, you're completely wrong. How could you do this? Uh, I can prove to you that all your conclusions are mistaken and you really need to come back and, and stop all this nonsense of becoming a secular person because you're losing out and you're you're not being good too. So, but so you know the latter ones are amusing, uh, but nothing more. The, the 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 former are kind of heartbreaking because these are people writing to me and telling me that you know they're in this world, they're stuck, they've got children, they've got family members, they can't just leave uh, just just to get out. The concept really uh, is just is, is so. It's so difficult. You know, it's not like, you know, a New Yorker who decides he's had enough of New York uh, can, you know, get up and move to Boston. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, you have to find a new job, but you can do it. It's not, you know, it's a big life decision, but it's not like moving to Mars. Mm -hmm. For a Hasid to leave his community or her community, it's really like like moving to another planet. And and that really is not an exaggeration. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, maybe not Mars, because, you know, you can't actually live on Mars, but it really is <laughs> is fundamentally, it is... Which it you is would know if you read a science book. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> but, um, but really, it is 
such a, it's, it is a transition that is as big as moving from a completely third world country to a very developed and advanced country without knowing anyone and without knowing the language. Yeah. Um, and it is, it is really scary. And so most people who want to do it are just too frightened by the prospect of failure. Um, and they don't even know where to start. And so these are the people that I have a lot of, uh, a lot of sympathy for. And I'm involved with an organization. I'll just throw this in. It's called Footsteps. It's a New York City based organization. And they provide, they do incredible work, even life saving work. Uh, for people who leave the ultra-Orthodox community and need assistance with just um, whether it's just social support or uh, college scholarships or people who need legal help in court if, you know, if a parent leaves and they want to hold on to their children, but they want to at least maintain contact with their children. But the community uh, raises thousands of dollars to keep the children away from them, which was something that happened in my case. So this uh, organization, Footsteps, has the Family Services Division that provides uh, legal representation to parents who are struggling uh, with, with a court, family court situation. Um, so this is, this is one of the ways that I am very heavily involved in trying to not necessarily encourage people to leave, but to offer a helping hand to those who do want to make the choice to leave. Well, we will have links to all of the the organizations you mentioned and your book uh, in the show notes for this episode. Thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate you uh, giving us some insight into that world. Thank you, Hammond, and thanks, Jessica. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the podcast for FriendlyAtheist.com. This episode was taped at Cinnamon Sound Studios in Aurora, Illinois, and the music was written and performed by Brad Chagdis. If you like what you're hearing, please consider making a contribution at Patreon.com slash Hemant. That's He-Man T. We appreciate your support. I'm Hemant Mehta. And I'm Jessica Blumke. We hope you'll join us next time.